Let's pray, and we'll pick up in John 19. Father, as we um, open up your word this morning, once again, Lord, we are reminded that all Scripture is God-inspired and profitable. And you've chosen, Lord, to include um, four times at length the story of the suffering servant, your son. References in not just New Testament, but Old Testament, Lord. You want us to know how much you love us. Demonstrating that by the lengths you were willing to go to to reconcile us to yourself. To take away any barrier between man and God. All the barriers of sin, all the barriers of fear, all the barriers of judgment. Everything, Lord, taken out of the way on the cross, as Jesus says, is finished. The work has been done. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning we... um, that any here who are still finding and making excuses to stay far from you, uh, a reminder to us, Lord, that it's not you, but us that keeps us at a distance. You've taken away every barrier and broken down every wall of separation, and you've invited us to come. And come we have, Lord. Come we have in, in, by hundreds, by thousands, by millions over the ages. And here we are, once again, sitting at your feet. We who struggle on a daily basis with understanding you, with loving one we can't see, with walking by faith, not by sight. And so again, we're thankful for your grace. Open up your word to us, Lord. Open our eyes to see wondrous things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen. Decisions, decisions. How many of you are good decision makers? And maybe somebody has a no, nobody raised their hand. Nobody will go, I don't know. Uh, yesterday, I got home from the men's breakfast and found a note on our table that Helga and Madeline had gone off to Walmart to buy a few things. And so I was like, oh, I need a few things at Walmart. So I called up Helga on the cell phone. And, and by the way, usually it's the opposite. I'm shopping and, and I've got to call Helga. It's impossible to shop. I don't know how we ever shopped men without a cell phone. I mean, we are destined to choose the wrong one. And there are more and more choices than ever. So I, I call up Helga. She's at Walmart. I say, she say, hey, I need a few things. I need razors and toothpaste. That should be simple, right? Well, what kind of toothpaste? There's total care, fluoride, whitening. I mean, we, there's like 50 gazillion kinds of toothpaste. I'm like, I don't know, just toothpaste. All right, so we figured out the toothpaste thing. What is it next? Well, I need razors. Okay, hit the razor aisle. Is it Mach 2, Mach 3? I mean, how fast do you want to shave? I got to shave really fast. Is there a Mach 5? I don't know. Some people say we make up to 35,000 decisions a day. And I believe it's true. Not only that, it's getting harder and harder to make decisions because there are more and more and more choices. And actually, the more successful uh, stores are the ones that carry fewer items, believe it or not. Because decision-making can become so overwhelming. And then, now, now that, those are simple decisions. What razor I shave with is a, ver- is a very small decision in life. Then there are the bigger decisions. Do I move? Do I change jobs? 
do I, do I marry this man? Do I marry this woman? Do we have children? You know, all of these, where do I go to college? Do I go to college? Do I take this? Decisions all the time. And there's sometimes when two, dis- two choices are bad enough, even though lots of the choices, or lots of decisions, there's tons of choices, but sometimes it's just two, dis- two choices that make us feel squeezed. You ever felt that pressure? You've got one group pulling you in this direction or one voice or one group of voices pulling you in this direction or pushing you. And then you've got this other side and people are squeezing you on this side. You ever felt that pressure of being just squeezed? Every time I, before we had trash service, we live kind of rural, you know, off the beaten path. And so we, we've never had trash service until just recently. So if we had to take our trash somewhere, we'd take it to the landfill. Anybody ever been to the landfill? It always feels good get just unloading that, doesn't it? I love that. But now they put in recently, well, not so recently, a few years ago, they put in those compactors. And it's just, I just, I'm, I'm amazed at the power in that thing as it takes that garbage and just begins to squeeze it. And we've been seeing, now remember, in John 19, John's gospel was written, and he wrote because he is... Uh, wanting to express the reality of Jesus Christ to you and to me and to everybody that reads it because he wants us to believe. He's, he's so trying to be so convincing and, and, and try to, to relay the information in a way that, that you see it for what it is, that Jesus is who he says he is. Because that decision is the decision between life and death, spiritually speaking. And, and, but that's not the decision I want to talk about. I want to talk about the other decisions all of human history is crescendoing in this, these pages that we're reading, this story. We talked about trials, just what an, an unjust, the most unjust trial in history is the trial of Jesus Christ. Forget about O.J. Simpson and Socrates and all these other things we talked about. The most unjust trial in history is the, tri- the trial of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of all that, we see people as this whole thing is, is coming to a crescendo, the pressure is mounting, isn't it? And we're seeing even the amount of time that, that is given in the Gospels to this 12-hour period of, period of time, between or roughly 12 hours, between the Last Supper and the crucifixion, great amount of ink is given to such a short period of time. And the pressure is felt, I think, by us. The pressure is felt as we read and study through. And so Jesus... We see the pressure he was under, sweating great drops of blood, saying, Father, if it's your will, let this cup be taken from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If there's any other way, and sweating, the pressure so great for him in that moment, knowing what he was to face, the pressure so great, the capillaries uh, in, under his skin breaking and, him, and sweating great drops of blood. That's pressure. A, a medical condition called hematidrosis that he suffered. So we see him under pressure. We see Judas under pressure, right? Judas now having to make this decision. He's on one side being squeezed by greed. And then on the other side now being squeezed by his conscience. Recognizing he had sold out an innocent man coming back to pay back the priests who, who paid him off. And then ultimately the pressure is so great, he commits suicide. We see the pressure of Peter 
knowing what he'd seen, having walked on water, walked with Jesus three years of his life, knowing who Jesus, he's the one that confessed about who Jesus was. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. Well said, Peter, you're right. And then the pressure, though, of being confronted by this servant girl and him denying completely that he knew Jesus at all. The pressure of what the public will say. And now we turn to John 19, and I'll get there with you. And we're going to see one more man under a tremendous amount of pressure having to make possibly one of the most important decisions of his whole life. He's a politician at heart, no doubt. He's gotten where he's gotten through uh, many uh, probably, probably twisted ways. His name is Pontius Pilate. For years, uh, people doubted his existence historically until a, uh, a piece of uh, ar- archaeology was discovered there in, uh, I believe it was in Caesarea, uh, where the, the, um, the guards and where the, the governor had his headquarters. We see it when we go to uh, Israel, the, a copy of an inscription that bears the name of Pontius Pilate. We've heard of him before. He's not someone who flies a plane, although kids sometimes think so. He's inspected Jesus. He's cross-examined him. Uh, he, sent him he, he found him innocent. He sent him off to Herod. Herod found him innocent, innocent. He comes back. Pilate wants to do everything he can to get rid of this situation, but he can't. And you know that feeling, right? There's, you do anything to not have to make this decision. But uh, there's nothing you can do. It is your decision to make. You can't pawn it off. You can't neglect it. It's your decision to make. And Pilate is in this place, in this time of history, not by accident, by design. Uh, he, he utters those words after Jesus tells him he came to bear witness to the truth. Ah, what is truth? And he wants to let him go because he knows that the whole thing is a setup. He knows he's, that they're turning over Jesus to him because of envy, that they just, the Jews just want to get rid of him. He's a troublemaker. He's brought light into their dark religious practices. And Pilate is stuck. He wants to get rid of him. So he offers this exchange. Hey, there's an there's a, uh, opportunity at the Passover to let a prisoner go free. How about Jesus? And they say, we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas, the guy who was a murderer and an insurrectionist. That's who we want. So now, verse 1 of chapter 19, we begin, and I, the reason I give all of that background is because verse, 9, verse 1 of chapter 19 begins with the word, so then. So you have to know where this comes from, all that's happened beforehand, because it's because of that, so then, because he couldn't release him, because they wanted Barabbas instead, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, scourge just, there's no like, there's no friendly way to say scourge. It's just a tough-sounding word, isn't it? And, and in our society, we're not very familiar with these things, and, and we can easily read over that. So at the risk of, of making this a, a graphic uh, sermon, just from the standpoint of understanding, because, because we read Isaiah 53. You're, you're there now, right? You, you've got a mark there. Go to Isaiah 53 briefly, and then we'll come back to John 19. There's a lot of people who question the Bible. You know, can we really trust the Bible? Is it really the Word of God? And, and people debate that stuff. But here's what I find fascinating. Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before Christ. 
when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, the scroll of Isaiah was, was complete. And it was a thousand years older than any other manuscripts that we had, have discovered. A thousand years older. And Isaiah 53 tells the story of Jesus' scourging, his rejection, so amazingly, written 700 years before it ever happened. And so as we read this, I want to point out, uh, look down at verse 4. And if you haven't ever read it, we studied it Wednesday night recently. But if you hadn't read it, Isaiah 52, 53, talk about the fact that the one who is going to deliver is not going to be carrying, you know, machine gun toting, Rambo looking, camouflage wearing. Like we picture in the movies, you know, come in, guns a blazing, break the doors down, take out the hostages and, and set everybody free. That's not it. The, and this is why, see, this, is, this was God's plan. The deliverer was going to be a suffering servant. And so you read this, and, and it just doesn't make sense until we see it lived out in the life of Jesus 700 years later. Look at verse 4. Surely he, this servant, the Messiah, the one that was going to rescue, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The Bible says, cursed is every man who hangs in a tree. And so with Jesus being crucified, hang on a tree, their interpretation would have been that he was a man cursed by God. So very true what he says here. But the difference is he wasn't wounded for his own sin. Verse 5 tells us he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised. And you can write next to that word, if you like to take notes, the word crushed. We're going to come back to that. Write the word, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And look at the next part. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of the bad people in prison. Of the people who don't go to church. Of all of us. And that is so important. The iniquity of all of us. So while we go back to John 19, I asked you to pay attention to the word crushed and also that word stripes. Because it says Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. This is his attempt to say, okay, I'm going to punish this guy. And I'm going to... This is meant to breed fear and horror by the Romans. I mean, this is meant to be a deterrent. If you see someone get scourged, that's a deterrent. To me, it is. Because what that meant is there was a guy or a group of guys, they were like the, the secret police, the security guards uh, of, of the, the magistrates and whatnot. And, and they were, their job was to protect, but their job was also to punish those that um, were a threat. And they were called the lictors. Anybody ever said that, or heard the saying, taking your licks? That's where it comes from taking your licks from the lictor was the man who was delivering the the beating with the flagellum is what it's called uh, it's a whip that's made with uh, leather cords or rope and into that leather or rope is inserted uh, pieces of metal and pieces of bone that have been sharpened now they had a particularly bad one called the scorpion that had a hook in the end and the jews had a rule that you could get uh, whipped uh, 40 minus 1 times, believing that 40 would be, if you did, you, you would die. 
by the time you were whipped 40 times with the flagellum. And, and by the way, there were also lead balls uh, it, it, to, to increase the, not just the bruising, but also the, the velocity at which the whip would hit you with that lead being flung. And this thing would come down on your back as you were strapped across a stump, stretched forward so all of your muscles were stretched out and your back was fully exposed and you would be uh, tied there, bound there. And then the, uh, the lictor uh, would go about his work. And it's amazing, even this, to this day, uh, what, what one thing that fascinates me and not just intrig- not intrigues me, I say in a negative way, is the ability for one human being to inflict punishment on another. And, and what has to happen in a human heart, what kind of coldness, what kind of disconnect has to happen to be able to do what people do to each other. But somehow, th- this was punishment, this was deterrent, this guy was going to be an example, and so they would lash. The Romans had no limit. But here was the deal. As a lictor, you could not kill him. He was, this was a, a precursor to the death penalty on the cross. So... Uh, you were beaten until you were within an inch of your life. And the, the power of that flagellum would be to actually uh, shred your back, to expose muscle, even down to organs. There was a great amounts of blood, tremendous amount of pain. Oftentimes, you, you passed out from that. And so, um, and here's the way I picture it. Look, there's a lot of ways to get saved, right? And, and I don't know, you know, you, you can think about this some more. I just submit it to you for thought. What, the way Jesus saved us was by covering us with his blood. Covering us, and, and the blood is the life. Your blood is your life. And I've always, you know, it's like, because we just read, it, he's being punished for our iniquities. It's, it, it's as if I was the one being punished for my transgressions, for my sins. There I was, hooked up to the, to the, the stump and it's like Jesus comes and he lays his body over mine. And, and so there I am, I'm guilty, and I, I'm, but every lash, instead of it hitting me, it hits him. And as he falls over from fatigue and, and from pain, there I am, having been completely protected through the whole thing. So the punishment was inflicted. That's just the way I picture it. It's not like a fireman who comes in and grabs you, throws you over the shoulder, and takes you out. It's more like the guys that do brush fire fighting. When, they, uh, when a brush fire begins to overtake a group of guys, they get surrounded by it. They have these little um, enclosures that are uh, fire and heat resistant. And they just basically have to get in them, zip up until the fire passes. And, and I, that's kind of how I picture my salvation. I don't know about you, but that's what I picture. So as he's being, he's being scourged. And so, because we, we develop in our mind pictures and, and oftentimes the pictures in our mind are dictated by what we've seen on TV or we've seen pictures of. And, and um, so the condition of Jesus, he's not eaten all night since the Last Supper. He's not had anything to drink. He's been up all night being interrogated. And now it, early, early in the morning, he's been found guilty of, of trumped up charges. And in an attempt to, to uh, bargain with the Jews, Pilate has him scourged. Not only that, verse 2, we're really making headway now. Mach 5, I think. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Now, thorns automatically bring us back to Genesis, don't they? Thorns wouldn't even exist 
if it weren't for the fall of man. Go back to Genesis. So the crown he's wearing on his head also symbolic or, or takes us back to Genesis, the fall of man, where uh, gardening would have been so much fun until those thorns. We've got some of these things that grow, man, and you just try to grab them, and they're just full of prickers and stuff. These were huge thorns on, on Jesus' head. And they, they didn't just lay, lay it real careful. They slammed it onto his head. And then they put on him uh, a purple robe. Now, I told you to remember that word crushed, right? Interestingly, this is before synthetic dyes. They used all natural dyes. And the dye for imperial purple was obtained in w- primarily one place. And it was interesting because the purple dye it was so valued because as it aged and was exposed to sun, it would actually get richer and brighter. And it was called imperial purple imperial purple and it was uh, made from a sea snail called a murex and they there were people that could actually it, it would ex, it would excrete this, secrete this purple dye or purple color secretion uh, when it was threatened so some people would take the time to kind of threaten the snail and, and and get the dye but others would just take and crush them and then they would get the dye that took 12,000 murex snails to make uh, crushed to make 1.4 grams of dye that would be just enough for the hem of a garment and so he's wearing now this purple imperial robe full of the dye that was made by the crushing effects and the secretion that came from this and he's being mocked as as a king and he's conscious barely Verse 3, then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. What's going through his mind? What goes through your mind as you're being, especially, you know, I speak to the younger kids in school. You ever been teased? Or maybe, some of you guys remember being in school. You remember being teased in school? And we see the effects of kids that are getting teased in school now. They get guns. And they go back into their school. And they say, I'm going to show you. And that's what kind of wells up in us, isn't it? I mean, who, you, who do you think you are to tease me this way? It's painful. So the, the, not just the pain, uh, the physical pain, but the emotional pain of being mocked and struck with, his hand, with their hands, keeping silent through the whole thing. One of the things that the scourging was meant to do was produce a, um, a confession. And what could he confess to? So he's silent through the whole thing. Verse 4, Pilate. Now Pilate comes, you know, this is a, the, the whole scene here involves Jesus and Pilate. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you. They're, they're, they're not seeing him yet. He says, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Well, that's not what it looks like. Looks like you did something because he was guilty of something. But Jesus is, or Pilate is saying, look, I'm bringing him out. I'm giving you another opportunity. I'm telling you, I don't find any fault in him. He's been inspected and found faultless. And I challenge you to do the same thing. You in here this morning who are skeptics. I challenge you to examine the claims like Lee Strobel did before he wrote The Case for Faith or The Case for Christ. A man who was an atheist, who was an unbeliever, who was a skeptic, who set out to prove Jesus was a myth. Jesus was not the Son of God. Jesus was not who he said. And as a result, what happened? He became a believer. I challenge you to examine the claims, to examine the history. 
to examine Jesus and see if you don't come up with the same conclusion that Pilate did. I, 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 I find no fault in him. I can't understand why so many people hate Jesus. Why schools won't let him in. Why workplaces won't let him in. Why? He's the Prince of Peace. He's a God of love. I find no fault with him. Or in him, excuse me. Uh, Pilate says, and then Jesus came out. Now try to get the picture in your mind. Try to picture the scene. He's not walking out proudly in his crown of thorns and, thorns and his purple robe. He's being mocked. He's staggering out, barely conscious, barely recognizable. His beard has been plucked out. His, his eyes are swollen shut. His back has been torn open. And now the robe that he's wearing is sticking to the oozing blood from his back. And he stands barely able to, like a boxer who's been beaten so badly that he can barely stand up. And there he is. And Pilate says, look at these words. He says, behold the man. Behold the man. How do you think he said that? Was he proud? Like, look what I've done to him? Maybe. Behold the man. Here's the guy you say is so much, I don't think he's going to be any trouble to you now. Behold the man. And Jesus, let me tell you this. I don't know why, why Christianity has become, become and has been such a female-dominated um, faith. Because men seem to have a hard time identifying with Jesus. He, he is a man's man. Any guy that can take a beating like this and remain silent and not retaliate is more man than me. So I don't know about you guys sitting out there. If you somehow think Christianity is for wimps or sissies or effeminate or whatever he's a jesus is fully man he is a man's man and here he is behold the man Pilate said therefore when the chief priests and officers saw him they cried out saying crucify him crucify him so if it, the the tension is mounting the pressure is mounting Pilate sees and he's hoping that they'll accept that but they don't and now the pressure on Pilate is mounting again. A frenzy begins to develop among the crowd. You know how that happens, right? You know, the, the crowd mentality is beginning to take over. And it, the source of it is these Jewish religious leaders. But the people are easily being sucked into it. Be careful of that. Please be careful. That's why it's so important to know the truth. Because we know what, what people have said about the masses. And it becomes so easy to, instead of thinking, just follow the crowd. We'll talk more about that when we get a few verses down here. The chief priests were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. I, I want out of this. I don't want to be involved. Pilate is just trying to get rid of the situation. You take him and you crucify him. The problem is they couldn't. They didn't have the right to. The right for, for the death penalty had been taken from them just years before Jesus um, is being crucified here or, or being interrogated and, and on trial. Uh, and if they could, their method of, of capital punishment was stoning to death. So the Jews, verse 7, answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. He's, he's being convicted of being who he really was. So they said, now all of a sudden they're, they're concerned about their law. Well, which wouldn't be right for us to do that. We can railroad this guy to the death penalty, but we wouldn't want to 
do something wrong. Therefore, when Pilate heard that, heard what? He's guilty of making himself the son of God. When Pilate heard that saying, verse 8, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium, the, the place where um, his house or his palace, and said to Jesus, where are you from? I wonder what Pilate is, as he's observing Jesus' suffering, as he's observing all this and the way he's handling it, I wonder if the wheels aren't turning for Pilate. You think? Because now they're saying he's the son of God. I wonder if Pilate's going, maybe he is. And so he says, what, what is your deal, man? Where are you from? What is, your, what is up? But Jesus gave him no answer. I, maybe, I don't, why didn't Jesus, again, he's silent. Uh, maybe Jesus didn't answer because he didn't need to. Maybe Pilate knew the answer already. You ever done that? You ask a question you already know the answer to? And I think my, my again, I can't say thus saith the Lord, but my instinct in reading this is that Pilate knew the answer. Now, verse 10, then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Because again, Jesus didn't answer him. Are you not speaking to me? And, and the emphasis of there is, is me. Are you not speaking to me? Powerful man. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Pilate thinks more of himself than he really is, but he, he condemns himself right there. Because this is where we get to the decision. Pilate says, don't you, you're going to ignore me. I'm the only one that can help you. Your life, Pilate says, is in my hands. What does Jesus say? You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate, my life is not in your hands. Your life is in mine. And you're only doing what you were designed to do and raised up to do. Think about God who raised up Pharaoh for just that perfect time. Think about God who raised up Judas for just that time. Think about God who raised up Esther or Cyrus, king of Persia. So we have this crazy tension in our lives of recognizing on one hand the sovereignty of God, that Jesus was going to be crucified. It had been determined all the way back from the beginning of history. That was what was going to happen. But yet at the same time, people aren't puppets just mindlessly being uh, forced into a certain direction or another. Every day we make decisions. We have free will. Now how do those things go hand in hand? I don't know. My brain begins to short circuit and smoke comes out my ears and I begin to just kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. But here's what I get. Pilate was right. The decision at that moment was in his hands. His wife had warned him. She had been given a dream that he should have nothing to do with this man. And every day you make decisions and your decisions are in your hands. So I, I, I trust the Lord that he is somehow sovereign and somehow working in all of these things. But then I do the best I can to make the best godly decision on a daily basis. Because I know ultimately I'm still responsible for my decisions. As Pilate is responsible for his. 
And really, the, the funny thing about this as we go on, we'll see that really Pilate doesn't have any power at all. You know who's got the power here other than we see the, the power of God to put him there and to have, have determined and dictated what was going to happen in all this. Uh, the Jews have power over Pilate. And we'll see why in just a minute. Jesus again says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The Jews loaded the gun and put it in Pilate's hand. And now Pilate had the choice to pull the trigger or not. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Oh boy. The heat just got turned up. Just when Pilate was really sweating it out, the Jews turned up the heat. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a lot of Roman history, but there's a backstory to Pilate. He'd had three run-ins with the Jews that could have cost him his job because the, the Romans liked to keep peace. And Pilate, on a few instances, due to some things he did that the Jews didn't like, the Jews complained to his higher-ups and could have got him fired. And so his job as governor allows him a lot of power, allows him a lot of freedom. But right now, his job is, is very, he's very close to losing it. He's, he's, he's on the, uh, the, the suspension list, I guess you could say. It's like one more instance, pilot, and you're done. And he knows that. And so when they appeal to Caesar... They know exactly what they're doing. If they go to Caesar, Pilate is out. And so now the decision-making process begins. What's most important to you, Pontius Pilate? Your job? Your power? Your ambitions politically? Or doing what's right? Or listening to your conscience? Because he's going to have to live with the decision he makes. And there's a lot of people that make unrighteous decisions. You know, you're at work and you love your job and then all of a sudden, sudden someone asks you to cook the books. This will keep it on the, the down low. I just need you to do this for me. And they put the pressure on you. If you don't do it, it's going to cost your job. Or what, maybe, maybe there's some sexual immorality at the workplace. A, a boss putting pressure on you uh, physically. If you don't give in to me, I'll fire you. And you're stuck. There's pressure. Both sides, your conscience. Look, I, I say this all the time, and as a pastor, you know, uh, there's the, the value of going to bed with a clear conscience. You, you can't put a value on that. You, you might increase your, your portfolio. You might go up the ladder of the job you're in or the field you're in, but you got to sleep at night. And there's no sleep as easy as a clear conscience, righteousness, doing what's right. See, for me, because if you don't, now you've got to go through the whole process of, because your guilt will eat you up, and you've got to go through the whole process of now justifying what you did. You've got to create a whole elaborate web of, here's why I did it, so you can try to have a clear conscience. We're going to appeal to Caesar, and, and you're not Caesar's friend. Caesar's not going to like it. And, and so Pilate 
verse 13 says, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. That was the place where he would make his official judgment from. It's time to make the decision. And I, and I want to remind you this. A, a crooked, a, a, if you look at a stream, do streams follow a straight line? They don't. They're crooked. Do you know why? A stream follows the path of least resistance. And in your life, you've got decisions to make. And here's what I've, here's, here's, I think what we need to reflect on is fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here, Pilate, he is giving in to his desires for power in politics over doing what's right. And don't we know that's the spirit of the age we live in? Is it not? Where people are willing to do whatever it takes to climb the ladder, have success. I mean, you see it. We see it as from the ball field to the Senate and the Congress and the White House. We see it the whole gamut through. We see it in churches. We see it everywhere. Where people, there is a tremendous lack of righteousness and integrity in our culture today. And, and the question is, what about you? Is there, do you look, how do you make decisions in your life? Are you more, more worried about what people think or how it's going to affect you? You're, every decision you make, you're weighing out the cost and the value. You might value that job or you might value that relationship that's not your husband or wife. But there's going to be a cost and we've seen it. And we've seen it. Make your decisions in righteousness the best you can. You know, the best you can. And then, and, and God is gracious. Pilate caves. They bring him to the judgment seat. Now verse 14 says it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour uh, most people say probably John looking at Roman time this would be 6 a.m. in the morning and he said to the Jews behold your king and at this point a frenzy is breaking loose they cried out away with him away with him crucify him this is the same group well or at least some of the same that a week earlier we're hailing him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, ushering him in as a king. And now look at him. And Pilate asks the question, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. What a compromise. And, and years later, they will run Pilate out of office. Event. Pilate loses in the end both ways. He'd have been better off. Look, the people you're trying to impress by doing something crooked or sneaky or underhanded or lying, they're not your friends anyway. They're ultimately going to sell you. If they're willing to do that, they're going to sell you out next. If it's going to suit them, they'll manipulate you and twist you and use you for their purposes and then throw you out like garbage. So the moral of the story is, just do what's right in the first place and trust the Lord. You do what's right and you trust the Lord. We have no king but Caesar. And what, a, what a joke that is. Verse 16, and this is where we'll close. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. We will pick up there next week speaking more about the process of crucifixion 
And uh, for homework, if you'd like to um, read Isaiah 53, also take a couple of uh, minutes tonight, it's not that long, and read uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, also clear, clear picture of the crucifixion. Hard to imagine, isn't it, folks? You know, we go through our day. I'm going to invite the praise team back up. And, um, you know, life is happening every day. And, and we're doing things. And somehow it's, it's, we can find ourselves in the midst of a soccer game or a birthday party or, uh, a, you know, a business deal or whatever. And it's hard to understand how these things relate to my daily life. It's kind of like being a fugitive. Could you imagine if you were a fugitive? Maybe some of you have been a fugitive. We didn't, we didn't do all the background checks. Maybe I'm a fugitive. <laughs> Broken the law in one state and run. Settle down somewhere else. But always, always, always nagging in your conscience is the understanding that you're a wanted man or woman. You can never really rest, right? Because you're always looking over your shoulder. You're never quite sure when it might be discovered, when judgment might finally fall. You've avoided it. You've run from it. You go about, you raise a family, you get a job, you, you, you become a Boy Scout leader, whatever you do. But always nagging in your spirit, yeah, nagging in, in your heart, is this understanding that at any minute, that knock could come on the door, Every time you hear a siren, you wonder, is today the day I'm going to get found out? And the Bible says that we were at enmity. We were an enemy of God. We were fugitives of God. We'd broken His law and, and been on the run all of our lives. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Wondering, when is, when is the day going to finally come? The judgment comes my way because I know that I know that I know. Are there any perfect people in here this morning? Just, we'd like to meet you. None of us. That's what we read. All we like sheep have gone astray. You know? And the Bible's so clear about judgment to come. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Sin of righteousness and of judgment to come. But God has done everything so that you could be Justified means not, not acquitted. That's different. Acquitted is considered not guilty. Justified is found guilty, but treated as if you're totally innocent. Dealt with as completely innocent. The only way that can happen is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because he took the punishment that was due me. So all of this, most people just keep this out of their mind. Most people just keep this out of their thinking. Right? They just go about their day. I don't want to think about that. And there's no peace. Or if there is a peace, it's a false sense of peace. It's not a peace with God. Because unless you've believed, unless you've brought Jesus' sacrifice as the covering for your offenses, you're still a fugitive. And, and, and when the fugitive, listen, when the fugitive gets caught, it's hard but there's a relief, isn't there? There's a sense of relief that finally I can stop running. Yes, I can finally, and then the whole, the charade is over, the masquerade is over, it's all, I can finally, 
I'm, I'm guilty. And let's just get it over with. Right? And you know the sense of relief? Yes, it's hard. I've got to pay the punishment. But, no, but the sense of relief, I can stop running. And some of you live in that place of still running, still hiding, still in darkness, still shady. And I'm probably preaching to the choir, but maybe there's one. I don't know. Or maybe you just need to understand it better for yourself. Because every day you get up, you say, thank God I'm not a fugitive. Thank God I have peace with God. Instead of chasing me down to judge me, he's chasing me down to bless me. Not only did he, once I confessed, once the, the chase was over, the surprise was, he said, I'll pay your fine. Not only that, I'm going to adopt you into my family. Not only that, I'm going to give you gifts and, and show my love to you. And then you say, what was I running from anyway? All that time I wasted running. And it was just that easy. All the time the prodigal son wasted. Eating with the pigs. All he had to do was come home. And the reception he got was beyond words. So as you go about your day, as you celebrate birthday parties, as you head off to work tomorrow morning, as you head off to school tomorrow morning, just keep these things in mind. Because what we're reading is what it costs for us to have that peace, to know that freedom, and to not have to run any longer from the God of the universe who loved us and gave his life for us. This is not just a storybook deal. This is real life. And it's made all the difference in my life. And, and it has in yours as well, hasn't it? Amen? Let's stand, and if anybody wants to come down for it, if you've got something you want to pray about, there's a nice long wooden stage here. You can come before the cross. You can meet me over here in the steps. Whatever it takes, uh, get right with God if you haven't already. And, and after service today, spend some time in the fellowship hall. Get to know each other. The way we're, we're known as disciples of Christ is by the love we have for each other. Let's do that. Amen? Amen.